0: What I learned in my first year of marriage, and uh, it hasn't been a full year yet, but almost. It's been 10 months. So we were married last March 30th. So I'm very excited to share. I'm going to just talk about three things that, three of the, the biggest things, I think, that impacted me uh, from marriage. If I look back and go, okay, 10 months later, what has marriage, cha- how has it changed me? Uh, what have I learned through it? And so these are, these are really key things. Uh, and what I want to say is just to open it up. And so if you're not married or if you've been married or whatever, this, I, I think, are these three things I'm going to talk about are absolutely essential keys for any relationship. Uh, if, if you want to be- have a better relationship with your family, with your friends, um, then these three things are really going to help you have a healthier relationship. And so just because you're not married, oh, check out whatever, this isn't for me. It really is for anybody in life. In any relationship, these things are going to help you have healthier relationships. So uh, I just think in marriage, a lot of those things get magnified because the relationship is closer. And so the closer you are, the more intense these issues become. Uh, And so my expectation for you guys, actually, is to please be respectful while you listen because um, these are some of my deepest thoughts and my deepest personal uh, revelations in the last, uh, ten months, so yeah, just be respectful and listen and really engage and go okay, what what can I pick up from this and be open um, and so that's where we're going to start so let 's just pray as we begin talking about the three areas. Father, we give this time to you, we thank you that you are here in our midst, that you love us, that you are for us, that you've given us victory in Jesus, that that is um, our gift, and that uh, we have to just live it out and so I pray that Through this message, you would motivate us, you would equip us, you would inspire us. Your Holy Spirit would do a work in us that we cannot do ourselves. So that we may uh, be more glorifying to you, that we can be examples of Christ to this world. um, And so that we can have healthy marriages. And because we know that that's what you're about, you're about relationship, you're about um, growth. And so God, we give this time to you, we say, uh, Lord, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the first uh, thing that I learned was I had some blind spots. <laughs> and you might go, well yeah, a- everybody has blind spots. And I feel like I'm being blinded right now, actually. <laughs> but... <laughs> uh, <laughs> good, good. Um, you might be wondering, like, how do, I, how, do I, how do I know what my blind spot is? That's the point. It's a blind spot. I can't see it, Right? And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And why do we need to seek out our blind spots and try to find out what they are? Because 2 Peter 3.18 commands us to. It says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command. God is commanding us to grow. And so in that effort, we need to start going, okay, where do I need to grow? What are my issues? What do I need to work on? What are my blind spots? And so here are some common blind spots. Oftentimes, what we do is we overestimate our rightness or or our moral capacity that we're always right. And this is a testimony of my life. (laughs) I think I'm always right. Otherwise, I wouldn't think what I think. I would change my thought, right? Obviously, I think I'm right. And uh, so when you put this into a marriage uh, scenario, (laughs) it makes very interesting conversations. (laughs) Um, Another thing is we overestimate what is due to ourselves. And we ust- underestimate what is due to others. And then we think we can do it on our own. These are some common blind spots. And so for me, what I found myself in relationship with Cheryl is that I thought I was right in situations where we, we maybe be arguing and I'm like, no, no, I, I know, I see clearly, I'm, I'm right. And so I'm going to argue from my position, from uh, justifying and defending myself. And what I learned is that I need to own my stuff because I thought I was always wrong. I'll give you an example. A couple of nights ago, two nights ago, Cheryl and I were having a dispute, and, blah blah blah, and it was bad. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, well, that's that's part of it. Uh, and and so through that. Um, I was like, man, Cheryl is being immature. So I just said, I said, Cheryl, you're being immature. And in that moment, <laughs> I thought, you know what? Okay, that is something I know that I did wrong. And I'm starting to think, okay, I need to own that. I shouldn't have said that. As whereas before, I would have thought, I'm right in this situation. She is being immature, and I don't need to apologize that, for that. And even if it is true, even if she is being immature, I don't want to um, give life to that and call her that and, and, and dwell on that. Uh, what I want to do is kill that immaturity and, and take the lead and, and lead in vulnerability and say no and call out the good in her. That's what I need to do. And so in that moment, I realized, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Even in this whole situation, even if I am right, that was my part to own. And so uh, realizing that I actually have a part, not just I'm just right and that's it. It was kind of black and white and realizing I need to own my stuff. And what I thought was if it was 51% the other person's fault and 49% my fault, it's still the majority their fault. So, you know, they have to deal with that. I'm still right. And that's just bogus even if it's 10% my fault, or even if it's 1% my fault, I need to own that. Instead of justifying and defending myself. And, and what I found is that in that defensiveness, it was actually, it's a, it's a childish, it's an immature, it's a boyish response. And if you've seen the authentic manhood series, it, it emphasizes the fact that a man is supposed to take responsibility. And so owning your part, for me to own my part, That was the man response that I needed, that I need to walk into maturity, to lead in my marriage. I need to own myself. out, no, this is mine and I will take responsibility for it and I will apologize for it and I will call out the good and I'm gonna lead in that way. And so that was a big part of of the lesson that I learned. And when it comes to, we think we can do it on our own and we overestimate what is due to ourselves, I just can't help it but think of Samson. I think of Samson in the story in Judges chapter uh, 13 to 16. And in that story, Samson goes out and he's pursu- pursuing Philistine women, women that aren't part of Israel, they're a different clan, they're worshiping other gods, and he's going and pursuing prostitutes. And God is a calling on his life. He's a Nazarite, which means he's been set apart for God from birth. And instead of living out that identity and feeding into that identity, he's feeding into his flesh, and he's feeding into his own desires to pursue prostitutes <laughs> and so on. And what, what Samson did is he pushed out uh, any kind of frequency. he had no friends. He had no accountability. He went and lived in a cave for a while. And so he just thought he could do it on his own. And it reminds me of this verse in Proverbs 18:1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and breaks out against all sound judgment. That's what we do when we, uh, when we have these blind spots of not owning our stuff and thinking we can do it on our own. And so I just hope in this section that you can start to think in your own mind, okay, what, what are my blind spots? What can I do about it? And, you know, the, the thing is, the problem is that we are self-centered, that we are our biggest problem, and that our self-absorption prevents us from seeing that. And so what we need to do is break through that. And let me give you an example. There's a story in Luke chapter 8, verse 4 to 15, where Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. What he says, I'll just kind of summarize it. He says to a crowd of people, he's talking, and he says, the sower went out to sow a seed. And as he was sowing, some of the seed fell onto the ground, onto the path, and that seed got trampled on. He sowed some more, and some seed fell into rocky ground, some seed fell onto uh, the, the, uh, the path and um, birds came and, and ate that seed. And he gives these examples and he says some seed fell into the good soil and that good soil produced good fruit. And so a little while later, the disciples come to Jesus. I think they were a little embarrassed and they're like, Jesus, like, what was that? Ab- like, what does that mean? You know, They want to get the meaning, right? And Jesus says that the seed is the word of God. And the word of God goes out And it goes onto the path and and the birds come and they snatch it and that's the devil. He comes and takes away the word. The word goes onto rocky ground and and the the weeds come up and they choke it out and that's when people receive the word for a little while. They're all excited about it but the cares of the world and the worries of the world choke it out and, and drown that seed. And he gives these examples and he says but then there's the good seed that enters into the rich soil and it produces good fruit and it lasts. And just as we've heard that story before um, in Christian circles, a lot, I know for me my automatic reaction, and I think for a lot of us, without even thinking about it, without even questioning our s- my subconscious reaction is, I assume that i 'm the good soil, I just think i 'm the good soil that 's who I am, and let me tell you something: you cannot automatically be good soil it doesn 't just happen it 's not usual. It's, it's not normal you have to work to become rich soil to receive the word of God because it goes against our nature it rubs against our pride and so just in, in, in that little example I think I can see man we got blind spots if I just think I'm the good soil I'm relying on myself I'm overestimating what is due to me I'm not owning my part and so we need to watch out for this and now I want to be clear, too, that if you're um, sitting here and you're going, oh, man, I just hear him saying, try harder, try harder, try harder. You're not good enough. You're just, you know, come on, work, work, work more. I'm, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, yes, from a Christian's perspective, yes, you aren't good enough. All of us are rocky ground. But Jesus comes, and it, we have to deny ourselves to find ourselves. And he comes and gives us his life. And so that we receive the favor of God, the divine favor from on high comes upon our life. And it turns our rocky ground into rich nutrient, nutrient rich soil. And we become that good soil. And so what I'm saying is that it's, yes, it's through work, but it's after the grace of God has already come upon us. So it's not grace by works but it's that gift receive, and then after that favor comes, then we give back to God. And so Dallas Willard said this, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. So we cannot earn our way to get grace, to get the favor of God. No matter what you do, no matter how good you are, no matter how high your standards of perfection are, you cannot earn God's favor. But after that favor comes, then you can work, become more like jesus because he gives you that grace and so what it means is we're not working for the grace we're working from the grace and so yes we need to work yes we need to try harder but not on our own and on on our own resources we cannot attain perfection on our own but with god's grace we can and this is what paul says by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace toward me was not in vain on the contrary I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. What Paul is saying is, he worked hard. Grace is not opposed to working, but it was from the grace he received. He was working from grace. He wasn't working to get the favor of God. Okay, so that's the Christian message, is that we work from grace, not for grace. And in the second lesson I learned, or the second blind spot that I saw, it was that I was an avoider. Now let me give you some background to that. I had some issues in my life in the last few years, and I was praying through those, and I was praying with other people through those, and this word kept coming to my mind, and it was the word rejection. And as I prayed through that, okay, what rejection? What does that mean? And I was just confused. I didn't know what was going on. And all of a sudden, two stories came to my mind. And... Um, I told my mom I was gonna share this, so she's okay with it. But two stories came to mind. One was, I was um, five years old. I was in kindergarten at St. Joseph's School in Nelson. I was on the playground and uh, school had finished. All the kids were playing around. All the parents come pick them up, up the kids and and they all go home. And I was the last one. There's no one out, no teacher, nobody else there. It was completely empty. And after a long time, just sitting there alone, I remember sitting at the top of the slide just crying, bawling my eyes out. And then finally, there comes my mom. The car comes out. I was so relieved. And then the second story that came to my mind was um, us three kids were in the car, and my mom stops at work. She said, I'm going to be five minutes. I'll be right back. And I kid you not, it was three hours later. (laughs) She came back. And those two stories, to me, they just represented that I felt like, and this is no intention of my mom or my parents, and of course they didn't mean to do this, but it's the unintentional wounds and brokenness that we grow up with that affects us. And so I grew up kind of just having this sense of rejection, feeling like I was on the back burner. I was neglected. I was rejected. And again, it was nothing that my parents were trying to do. They loved me so much. But that's, that's so I think, through prayer and revelation and, and reminded of those stories, that's where this comes from. And so I started living out of this um, spirit of rejection in my life and fearing it. And so I'd want to protect myself from that. And so what I did is became an avoider. And this is from a book called Attached. And it's about, um, uh, the subtitle is called, Uh, the science of adult attachment. It's about the different ways we love and how we attach through relationships. And so in in this book, it talks about three types of uh, attachment styles. It talks about the avoider, the secure person, and the anxious person. And so when I read this list, and there was another book too called How We Love, and it details uh, even more. And when I read that list, I don't know if I've had a more clear revelation of a blind spot in my life. Like It was just boom, epiphany, lights went on. I am an avoider. And this was some of the things on the list. It was focusing on small perfections in your partner and flirting with others, uh, s- not saying I love you, pulling away when things are going well, and checking out mentally when your partner's talking, and avoiding physical closeness. So some of these things that I just did and I didn't know why it was just happening to me. And I realized that it was part of uh, my story of rejection. And so how can I get through that? How can I get over that? How can I heal that? And um, here's some strategies to change. First of all, just knowing that you're an avoider. I think that that's the light's going on, recognizing that uh, I do avoid things. Recognizing that all of us have some of these issues, uh, and then not focusing on self-reliance, focusing on that mutual support, which basically is is like the third one, moving the opposite spirit. It's wi- which is instead of avoiding, it's going into the relationship and embracing that intimacy, which leads to um, my point later on, which is vulnerability, which is huge. And so, uh, just to sum up, my my. Uh, My learning on blind spots is that I learned I need to own my stuff. I need to be a man, have a man response and say, this is my my part to own. I'm going to own it. I'm going to be responsible for it and I'm going to take it to the cross. And then also that I have avoidant tendencies and I need to embrace intimacy to not run away from uh, from relationship with my wife, even subconsciously in in those um, symptoms that we saw earlier. And so how, to, how do we um, address our blind spots? Again, I think it's self-awareness, knowing each one of us in this room has blind spots. And so to be willing to say, okay, what are my blind spots? And then to actually ask someone, ask your spouse, ask someone in your life, be willing, open up to that and say, okay, I've got stuff to deal with. W- share with me, tell me, I'm gonna be open to, I'm not gonna, you know, blow up on you. <laughs> So that's something we can do to address our blind spots. The next lesson I learned was accountability. Now there's two types of accountability we'll address. There's accountability within your marriage, between your spouse and you, and then there's accountability from outside your marriage speaking into your marriage. So first of all, accountability inside your marriage. I think it's really important to have here are some questions that we can ask. Men, are you accountable to your wife? Women, are you accountable to your husband? Here are some, some things people might say. They might say, well, I don't have to tell my wife all this stuff. Like, it just feels like she's policing me or, or the other way around. Maybe he feels like that about her. And, and it's like checking up on me all the time and getting her nose in my personal business. It just seems like they're nagging me all the time. That's one perspective you can come at it. But the other angle is actually you're submitted to each other and in that endeavor you have opened your life to your partner to say hey i am an open book to you come i want the your i want you to have freedom to come to have access into me to know all of me and that way you can team up and be submissive together submissive to each other in uh, your desire to make each other better because you recognize that you aren't perfect, that you are fallible. And so you say, hey, come check up on me, see how things are going. And you know, I need that in my personal life. I need that. When Catalyst was going on last time, I'd come home and go, man, Cheryl, I need prayer because um, I'm I'm starting to take on the weight of this myself and the, the results are gonna be good because I wanna be a people pleaser and I want this thing to look good. And so I would take on, a lot of that, that stuff that wasn't mine to take on. And I'd come and say, Cheryl, I need prayer. I need, I need you to come and, and ask me questions about this so we can take this to the Lord. Or, or sh- I need her to come and, and to say, hey, how are your thoughts today? Are you having irrational thoughts? Are you having negative thoughts? Are you having lustful thoughts? How can I help you? And to have my life as an open book and uh, for her to do the same to me. And so that's the accountability within the marriage. And here's some verses, I think, that just, that just emphasize we need that. Two are better than one. You have, we need to confess our sins to one another. That's what the scriptures command. And so doing that within the marriage is important. And then the final one is, iron sharpens iron, so a person sharpens his friend. So that's a little bit on accountability within the marriage. But then this huge revelation I had was on accountability from outside. Now, what I notice is common is that when we see a young couple, they're, um, they're not married. They're just, they're just kind of dating and stuff. And what we do is we come to them and we say, you know what? You need to have advice. You need to have some outside sounding board because love is blind, and then you're going to do something you regret. And so we kind of give this advice from outside. But then as soon as that young couple gets married, all of that outside accountability stops. There's no one going into your marriage, asking the personal hard questions anymore. You're kind of left on your own and and said like, okay, you're married. Now you're, you're a man, you should be able to deal with it yourself. And you're kind of an island unto yourself as a marriage. And that leaves a marriage in a very difficult spot. This was a huge revelation for me that, that as a couple, you have blind spots, just as you have blind spots as an individual because as a couple you are two sinful people coming from totally different backgrounds where you grew up in a in a family that was good like my family was but you get hurts and wounds because you're broken because no family is perfect so every single family has some measure of dysfunction and so you're bringing that into your marriage with the other person who has the same kind of background or a different background but the same kind of brokenness and you put that together And you start developing bad patterns and old habits from what you saw in your parents marriage that you thought was normal but was dysfunctional and so you bring those two things together and before we know it (laughs) i was going to say 5 10 15 20 years down the road for me it's more like 5 10 20 weeks down the road (laughs) 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 Uh, you see and, and honestly in the last time i've seen those patterns can develop so quickly and you get stuck in a rut so easily that you, it's so important to have a voice from the outside that you've opened up your marriage to come speak. It's a trusted friend, a trusted couple, a pastor, a counselor, somebody who can come and have that voice into your marriage because we, we just generally don't do that. It hasn't been modeled for us. And uh, I've been so blessed and fortunate to have that and realize I had this revelation. Marriages need accountability because I, d- I don't see that. I didn't see that model. It's just they're just kind of left there to do it on their own. They're, they're uh, expected that they are responsible uh, human beings and they can figure it out themselves and, and they're left on their own. And that's just not the way it works. And so what happens if you have that, there's two results that happen. One thing is that your marriage can have a growth rate that is exponential. You can just go from, you know, a, a bad place to just zooming forward very quickly because you have an objective voice that can look into your marriage and see these patterns are going bad. This is a wrong pattern to have. And they can speak with love and for your betterment, and for your encouragement. And it's so life-giving. And so you can move at a faster pace. And the other thing is that your marriage is going to be life-giving. It's not going to be life-sucking like, like a vampire. It's going to be able to <laughs> give, give. And so that those are the two outcomes of having that accountability in your marriage. The third point that I learned in my marriage um, in the last 10 months was vulnerability. And this is huge. I, I, can't, I don't even think I can explain it. Uh, well enough to the, to the degree of importance that it is. You c- I, d- I don't believe you can live at all healthily, normally, happily <laughs> without being vulnerable. And so what is vulnerability? It's letting down your guard, opening up to somebody the secrets of your heart and exposing all of who you are. Everything is laid bare. And so you are being honest, You are willing to confront. You are willing to initiate. You're willing to initiate asking forgiveness for change. You're willing to initiate intimacy in, in, in your physical life. And it's willing to risk rejection. It's putting yourself totally out there. And what happens when somebody does that? If somebody steps out and risks rejection, then vulnerability begets vulnerability. And that the other person then goes, oh, this is a safe place. The guards have been let down. I can enter into in, and share my issues as well. I can trust this person. I can rely on this person. I can share my stuff with this person because they've let down their guards. And so when someone does that, it's much easier for the other person to do the same. And so vulnerability begets vulnerability and trust begets more trust and it ends up being this um, cycle of deepening and deepening and deepening in relationship and so this is a bit of a paradox and this is why i had such a struggle with it in my own life not only because of the rejection how on earth could i go and show people my uh, my bad side or my weak sides or my weaknesses When I I have so much pride, I'm concerned about what other people think, and I don't want to risk getting rejected. I can't. It's a self defense mechanism. I need to protect myself. I will not be vulnerable. And so it was a paradox. How can these things work together? But this is because it's part of the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom, there are many paradoxes. Like we must lose ourselves to find ourselves, or in serving, there is greatness. In humility, We are exalted. In submission, there is authority. Death brings life. And vulnerability leads to intimacy. Showing your weaknesses leads to intimacy. That's counterintuitive. But that's the way that God has designed it. And so when I think of this, I think of this story in John chapter 12 where Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're in Lazarus' house, and there's probably quite a few people around Martha's in the kitchen they're serving. And Mary comes in, and she uh, pours this ointment over Jesus' feet and starts washing his feet with her hair. And in the midst of that, um, you just imagine that scenario, how much vulnerability. And that ointment, Mary probably wasn't a wealthy person, that ointment cost 300 days of wages. So when you think about that, think about your own salary, 300 days of wages for anybody is a lot of money. And so that was probably Mary's all. That was her everything. And she came to expose her everything and to lay it down at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus took it as an anointing of of himself for his burial that was soon to happen. And there's Judas over there in the story as well. And he's saying, this money could have been used to help the poor. And then it says in parentheses, but Judas really helped himself to the money purse. So where Judas is over there, um, concerned about himself and self-preservation and being greedy to try to get that money for himself, he's locking down, he's not being vulnerable. And Mary, on the other hand, contrasted as giving her everything to Jesus. And it wasn't long later that jesus himself went to the cross naked exposed and bare for all of humanity as a sacrifice to take upon the himself the sins of the world and to say i am initiating change i am initiating uh this relationship i am going to be the first one to step out and to be vulnerable you can trust me you can trust me in relationship You can trust me with your problems. You can trust me with your life. I will take your life because he loves us. And so he gave his entire self. He died. He couldn't give any more. God has given to you every single thing he can give to you. Except for divinity. He's not made you God. That's it. Everything else he gives to you. And he makes you co-heir with Jesus, so you do reign with him. He can't give you more than that. He's given everything. And so what we need to do is, is also be vulnerable back. Instead of fearing what might happen to protect ourselves, we need to lay our all down and say, Jesus, you can have my all. If it's 300 days of wages, if it's whatever it is, he puts on your heart. Your whole life, your whole marriage, your pride, so that you can be accountable, so that you can be vulnerable, so you can give, you can have growth in your relationships. That's what Jesus is asking of us. And as we move to application here, I want us to think about a couple of things. Ravi Zacharias said this: teaching at best beckons us to morality, but it is not in itself efficacious. What that means is that. Teaching it at best, it, it calls us, it inspires us, you know, to be better. But it, teaching itself, does not make us better. Teaching is like a mirror. It can show you if your face is dirty, but the mirror will not wash your face. And so if you've come here this morning thinking, church is going to make me better, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. Church is not going to make anything happen this message is not going to make anything happen in and of itself has to be the holy spirit and you teaming up together with the grace he's given you so that you can walk in the grace grooves if you fight against the grace if you if you're walking in pride you're going to have a hard life because there's spiritual rules that god has laid down and one of them is he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble And so if you walk in humility, all of a sudden you'll find that favor. You'll find your grace groove where it's easy to walk and where you find the blessings of life flowing, where you see that tree always producing fruit in the desert because you're walking in the God-designed pattern that life is supposed to, the, the way life is supposed to look and the way he made it to be. And that's just the way things are. We can't do anything about that except for accept it and to walk into it. And so, as we think about this, we're going to think about how we're going to, uh, not just coming to church isn't going to make us better, how we're going to walk out of these doors, how we're going to apply this. And, and for me, I felt like the Lord <laughs> prompted me to, to do this, to read my vows again, my marriage vows, to Cheryl publicly for the second time. Um, and just, I, I don't know why. So if it speaks to you, then l- let the Lord speak to you. But I just felt like this was what I was supposed to do. And so this, this is my ma- marriage vow. I, Basil, take you, Cheryl. To be my <coughs> Excuse me. To be my cherished wife, my most intimate friend, fiercest ally, and lifelong lover. I was Cheryl. <coughs> my life with yours. And and with this one I noticed that I can't do that without being vulnerable. I can't do that without also opening my life to her accountability, which then leads to finding my blind spots. So I will share my life with yours and commit to building dreams together. I will support you in trials Comfort you in sorrows. Rejoice with your laughter. And celebrate your victories. And by God's grace, I will love you as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. This commitment is made by God's grace. In love. Kept in faith. Lived in hope. And eternally made new. So as we walk away, what are we going to do? Just as a recap, let the Lord speak to you in this time. This is a time to open up. God, I want to walk in your grace grooves. You have been the most vulnerable, most humble, most loving human being that ever has lived. I want to be like you. And so how do we find our blind spots? We pursue them. They'll be revealed. Then can ask somebody. Ask someone in your life. Ask your wife accountability. Ask somebody to speak into your marriage, pastor, friend, counselor, another couple that you trust. And also there is a fund for people uh, in this church, a benevolent fund for those who want counseling, who need counseling, but can't afford it. Um, And we're also going to be talking about um, having a specific counseling fund for that, uh, as well as just a benevolence fund. Um, So that is there if you need it, and you can talk to pastor jesse about that in terms of vulnerability what can you do be the first to initiate change honesty love making asking for forgiveness to bear it all to come and say hey this is who i am that's what humility is being true to who you are and uh and so let's just pray as we think about those things i'm going to give a second just to just for you to be able to think through them for a minute to say, okay, I'm going to walk out of this church because this, this service has not done nothing to cleanse my face except for motivate and encourage me, but I myself have to go out and do it. So I'll just give a moment of silence. Father, I thank you that your will is for marriage. It's for relationship. Even if we're single, you uh, desire our relationships to thrive. That you are God of relationship. In you is Trinity. There is three in one. There is perfect community and unity in the Trinity. And you are that great example to us of humility and vulnerability and love. Lord, I ask that you would come in with your Holy Spirit to do a work that we cannot do on our own that you would humble us, that we would find and see our blind spots, that you'd reveal them to us, that we would walk in accountability and vulnerability, that we would have great intimacy and that our marriages and our relationships and our lives and our church would flourish and be a a stunning example, be a light on a hill that this world can see and that um, we would bring your kingdom down to earth as you taught us to pray. And so I thank you that we can pray this prayer, we can live this life, From grace, not trying to get perfect on our own, but from grace, we work toward this. And we're going to work hard toward it. And so we thank you, God, for your grace that is given to us, that enables us, that empowers us, that changes us. God, have your way in this place. I thank you for your promises that you said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I thank you that you said that For those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. Thank you, Lord. I pray that we are those people, that you would fulfill those promises in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.